Okay, welcome to episode 143 of Greater Than Code. I'm Amy Newell, and my co-host, Rain Henricks, will take it from here. Hello, everyone. I'm Rain, and I'm going to introduce our guest, Kione Mahalona. Did I get that at all right? That's pretty close. Pretty close. I'll take it. Okay. So, Kione is a native Hawaiian born and raised on the island of Kauai, where Mark Zuckerberg forced the sale of ancestral lands. He went to Olin College of Engineering, worked on driverless cars back in the dark urban challenge days with MIT, went to New Zealand on a Fulbright and uh, met his partner of nearly 10 years. He is Maori. And over the past 10 years, he's been working for an indigenous media organization and applying his technical background to an industry ripe for disruption. So this is what I think is really cool. Uh, well, a lot of it's really cool, but especially this. So recently they've built the first, uh, is that Tereo? Tereo, yep. Maori speech recognition and speech synthesis engine. And the tech exists for this. So the key challenge for them was acquiring and managing the data with indigenous intelligence. So I'm going to start by asking you the question we always ask, and then maybe we can talk a little, little bit about how that happened. So. What is your superpower and how did you acquire it? I guess one thing I'm good at is I can build things pretty quickly, like just take ideas and, and I guess rapid prototype, if you will. And I think that's been a key for our organization in the last four years in terms of trying out new ideas and adapting. Um, and we're a very small organization and we don't have much money. So being able to test things quickly before investing a lot in it is, is really important for us. So you were born in Hawaii yeah. and you're Maori. And so then you went oh. to New Zealand. Oh, okay. No, no. Right. So let me, um, right. So I'm, I'm, I'm Hawaiian. I mean, I'm a lot of things um, as, yeah. as a lot of us are. Um, I predominantly identify as Hawaiian, but I'm also um, Chinese and Native American and Irish and French and, and probably a few other things that I'm unaware of. I went to school in the East Coast, got a Fulbright, went to New Zealand. I met my partner in New Zealand a year after that Fulbright. And that's why I'm still in New Zealand. But New Zealand is actually a pretty amazing country and a great place to live, especially considering some of the things happening in America right now. My partner is is a Maori, so that's the indigenous people of New Zealand, you know, where The Hobbit and um, Lord of the Rings was filmed. Um, there's actually like an indigenous group of people uh, who lived here who were colonized by the British um, back in the day. And yeah, so I, I think my my partner and I have a lot of similarities or, or shared values. We have a lot of shared values. And I think that's why we've been able to work to like, we actually like work together. Like he's the general manager and I'm sort of the tech person. And when people hear about this, they're like, oh, wow, you work with your partner. That's, that's pretty good. Cause you know, sometimes that can lead to a lot of conflict and it does sometimes lead to conflict. But at the end of the day, we have shared values. And I think that's what's enabled us to do the sort of work that we're doing, which is pioneering the revitalization of te reo Māori and, and Māori culture with the help of technology. And now being a Hawaiian, I have this kuleano, this responsibility, you know, to actually go back to where I'm from and help our people there. And so now through this work um, with machine learning and indigenous data, I'm sort of being pulled back to Hawaii and trying to see how we can, yeah, how we can and work more with, with the Hawaiians and some of their issues. Yeah, so I just read that wrong. You're Hawaiian and your partner is Maori. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I guess you both feel a connection to your respective indigenous cultures. Absolutely. Like, yeah, totally. Hey, if anything, I think my partner is more grounded in his in his culture and, and than I am. Because I, I've had a very strong Western education, you know, like with TMT, right? We're talking about building an advanced telescope on top of a sacred mountain. And I, I can geek out about the coolness of the technology in this telescope, right? And, and what it can able, enable us to do. But I need someone like my partner or the kupuna, the ancestors back, or, you know, our, our elders back in Hawaii to ground me and be like, yeah, okay, there are these sort of Western benefits to the project, but these are the cultural ramifications of it. So, yeah, so he, he very much helps ground me in terms of um, reminding me of my my kuleana or, 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 you know, the cultural aspects of, of what we have to do. I feel like that's a really important piece for all of us working in tech that is so easy to forget that tech is also about people. And we really need to consider exactly that, those ramifications and how to negotiate that where a project 
may get something, you know, really great from a technology standpoint, but not be so great for the people who it's directly affecting. What are some ways you try to sort of sort through that in your community? You know, for us, um, because of our organization and how we're structured, we're a nonprofit, a charity. Um, we have a board that um, is made up of two members from each of five tribes that we represent in the far north of New Zealand. But we have a bit of autonomy in terms of how we operate. But in terms of accountability, you know, we're not accountable to shareholders. We're actually accountable to our community. And our community are the people we see on the street every day. And so if we do the wrong thing, our community will let us know about it, whether it's messages on Facebook or, or, or you know, calling us out on the street. Like we're, we're accountable to the people that we represent. That helps remind us to do the right thing, if you will. And but sometimes we're in this we're in a situation where we're not sure what the right thing is because this is this is a new area, right? And so I mean, one example is with, you know, with this corpus that we've gathered to do Tereo Māori speech recognition, you know, like that data could give any machine the ability to machine read the culture at scale, right? And so it can learn all about us. It can learn our traditional knowledge and our, um, you know, Mataranga Māori. So we have. Um, I mean, one example is with the Manuka honey, you know, Maori always used Manuka, which is like a tea, a tea tree related to the Australian tea tree. Maori always used it as a traditional medicine. And then there was a scientist at a university who who sort of took that idea and then tried to understand what in Manuka allowed it to have some medicinal effects. And he's sort of isolated some particular molecule that comes out of the Manuka honey. And you can maintain the integrity of that molecule if you process the honey a certain way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So now we have this huge, booming uh, Manuka honey industry, so big, in fact, that people are trying to like fake Manuka honey. And now we're having to do DNA tests to ensure the integrity of the honey. So that's an example where, you know, a little bit of indigenous knowledge led to quite a large economy, you know, or, or a large uh, product. So likewise, you know, if machines can just sort of read our culture at scale, they could pull out these sorts of information. And actually, I mean, because of the state of many indigenous people through colonization, there is a lot of knowledge that might have been captured, whether it was, you know, doing radio interviews um, 30 years ago or, or writing down notes in a book. There is some of this data there, but we don't know it's there. We know we know where it might be, but we don't know what's in those books, you know, that are collecting dust in a museum somewhere. And and so actually teaching machines our languages could help us to revitalize our culture and bring back some of our traditional knowledge that's just sitting there. And it'll help us do this at scale. But it's important that we ensure that we are the ones who are doing it because that's our data and they've already taken our land and we're not going to allow them to take our data and capitalize it and make a profit off of it while our people are still in poverty you know, have high rates of heart disease and rheumatic fever and 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 all these other things. You know, we're we're struggling, and this is really the final frontier of colonization. And so that's a huge responsibility for us is that to to possess a corpus that can enable this. And so sometimes I, I'm like, gee, is our is our security? You hear about security breaches, like, oh my god, like did <laughs> someone just break into like our AWS and take everything? The data that these projects are generated, you want to make sure that you have ownership of it. Not ownership. Not, not you specifically, but but the culture from which it arises. Yes. The community that, you know, contributed the data in, in our minds sort of own that data. We are just the guardians of that, which we're calling the kaitiaki. And the similar word in Hawaii, they if you you might have heard with the TMT movement, they're saying ku kiai mauna. So ku is stand and kiai is is protector, guardian. So kiaki and kiai, they're basically the same word. There's some some sound variation there, but the same word and same meaning in in Hawaiian and and in Maori. So we're the guardians of this data. We don't own it. We just look after it and ensure that the right things are done with the data. And we've said that, look, we, we need this data to help with language revitalization or to create technology that will allow Māori to build the next generation of apps, you know, that have a, a speech interface. And so our community are very much aware of the intention of us collecting this data and what we, um, what we plan to do with it. But they also trust us because 
our organization, like I've only been there for about four years, but our organization has been around since 1991. It's a community organization. So in the last 27 odd years, we've built trust in the community. So when we say, hey, we need this data to do this thing, they trust that we will do the right thing with that data, as opposed to if, say, for example, Google came along and say, hey, we need this data to do this thing. Um, clearly, there's not that trust in an organization like that. So we, we do have an advantage in that regard. Um, obviously, we don't have the sort of um, financial resources that they do. And at the same time, it, it seems like if you could share the, the data in a way that, that protects sort of the, the rights that people have to it, that that could be useful. Is, is that where this, this license comes in? Yeah, that's right. And so, I mean, you know, with language revitalization and these sort of digital technologies, like if we want these indigenous languages to stay around, they will need a place in the digital world, which means that, I mean, it's hard to say, but I, you know, I think Siri might have to speak Maori and Hawaiian at some point. Uh, same with Cortana and Alexa and whatever Google's one's called. I think it has a name. That's a decision that's going to have to be made on, you know, per indigenous group. And the thing is, like, I think I think we would be okay with that. For example, with with Apple, um, they don't sell language as a service, sort of. They just have. Oh, it's probably easier to explain the other one. Google and and Microsoft and Amazon, they sell language as a service, right? You can record some audio, send it to their cloud platforms and get back some text. You can even get back how old the person is or whether they're male or female, et cetera, et cetera. So anyone in the world can spin up some uh, Google or Amazon service and now uh, build some sort of uh, language application with the languages that, that those companies support. So if we gave them Maori or Hawaiian, they could then sell those languages as, as a service to anyone in the world. And, and for us, that's a problem because um, that's a missed economic opportunity for us. Whilst it's not a lot of money for Google because of the scale at which they operate, for our people, we're a minority. Most of our people are in poverty. Um, that is an economic opportunity that could help a lot of families. And it's also high value jobs that we could create for our own people. And so that's why we're very much against anyone but ourselves selling our language as a service. And that becomes troublesome because the way Google works is that all of their services use um, all of their, their cloud API. So if um, you can't just have, say, Google's Pixel speak Maori without them being able to offer that to, you know, the millions of, of um, developers that use their platform, at least not now, it would be a special case, right? And they probably don't want to handle multiples of, of special cases of, of, of a bunch of minority languages. Apple, on the other hand, doesn't really have a cloud platform you can use. And so, you know, we might be a little more comfortable with Siri learning Maori because it would just mean that anyone who has, um, you know, a phone could, could just speak Maori uh, to it without being so concerned about whether non-Maori could develop um, Maori learning apps, for example, and, and sell it back to us. It's something that we need to think about more. And there's a few of us who are who are very much aware of this situation. Um, we're not sure what the right path forward is, but we're very much sure that um, we need to maintain the sovereignty over this data and we need to be the ones to decide um, how it's being used. That sounds like a, a very challenging catch-22 because, yeah, of course, for the, the maintenance of the of the language, you want it to be sort of, you know, available, yes, on people's phones and in, you know, everybody's little home devices. And, yeah, it also makes perfect sense that you need to retain it, not give it away to Google. Wow, I, I, that had never occurred to me. This is not quite the same thing, but I was having a conversation about Yiddish last night with a colleague who teaches Yiddish. And people learn Yiddish essentially to maintain the culture and to learn about their, their cultural heritage. There are like some small Jewish communities where it's still like a first language, but um, there's a much larger set of people who are just interested in it for general sort of Ashkenazi Jewish culture. Is there a larger community of people who don't speak Maori, but are kind of interested in it from that cultural background perspective? Yeah, Maori is, oh, I don't, I'm trying to think of some like 
some um, colloquialism to use, but I'm very bad at them anyways. I'm <laughs> What's the song from um, the, the Wiz? Um, this year's black is next year's pink or something like that. I probably just stuffed it up. Anyways, Maori is hot right now. Like it is in. Everybody wants to learn Maori, whether they're Maori or not. Right. And sexually, you have a lot of non-Maori learning Maori and being praised for this. But it's interesting because, you know, most Maori are are not, you know, don't have large amounts of disposable income because of just the years of injustice and racism. And so um, the privileged community are more able to take some time out of their day and pay some money to go and learn a language, whereas the, the indigenous people who actually come from that language are more concerned about how they're going to feed their kids tomorrow. And so um, it's that's this interesting socioeconomic thing happening. But in, in despite that, Maori is becoming popular. More people are wanting to learn Maori in this country. Even immigrants coming to New Zealand are wanting to learn Maori. The government is making it a goal to have, is it maybe a million people speaking Maori, um, having some basic um, understanding of Maori by 2040? So even the government is pushing to bring New Zealand to become a bilingual country, but to really bring Maori in, into the mainstream. And that's what we're seeing in New Zealand. And I think that's part of this language revitalization journey that in Aotearoa, Maori is finally at the state where, you know, the academics might say it's still it's still at risk. But I mean, when you see it being used in the communities and how it's being used, you I mean, like certainly for us, it's like I mean, I just think it's the language is, is, is doing I think it's doing good. I can see it just getting better over time. Now, in Hawaii, you know, they're probably a. I don't know, a decade or so maybe behind Maori in terms of the language revitalization. And I don't spend enough time there to, to get that community feel for it. But I just got back from being on the Mauna, Mauna Kea. And, you know, being there, there's so much Hawaiian spoken. Even the kids who are helping, volunteering to serve food during the day, they're just having conversations with each other um, in Olelo Hawaii. And then we were, we were down in Hilo, you know, the receptionists at hotels are speaking Olelo Hawaii. And you, you just see it more in that community. And to me, that's such a great sign that, that the language is, you know, it is, it is strong and, and there is a good movement to bring it back. But I'm not sure how, like, how much of the non sort of Hawaiian population are wanting to learn Hawaiian. I think globally, um, indigenous languages are becoming um, popular, if you will. There is a company called Lionbridge. They sell localization as a service, which means if you have a, a brand or a, a marketing campaign and you want to take it to another country, they will help you to sort of translate it and, and everything to make sure it's culturally appropriate. They've been actively soliciting uh, speakers of indigenous languages to sell their language for something like $45 an hour. They were trying to get Hawaiians and Maori and Samoans to go to some website of theirs and read sentences of those of their languages and then record it so they can do speech recognition. And they have this rhetoric about, you know, helping minority languages, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, Lionbridge is, is an American corporate. They don't have any presence in our communities. And so to me, that's a sign that there's clearly um, an economic opportunity here when you have a, a global corporate investing in acquiring indigenous languages. Clearly, someone sees that there's an economic opportunity here. And we need to ensure that the indigenous people are the ones who, who sees that opportunity. Other than that, it's, you know, it's it's back to where we were in terms of the Wild West and and the Pacific, where it's first come, first serve, and then we're left with nothing. Uh, when I was getting ready for this episode, I really wanted to sort of learn more about the, the underlying issues. And so I started doing some reading, and uh, I found a paper in the International Indigenous Policy Journal called Data as a Strategic Resource. Self-Determination, Data, Governance, and the Data Challenge for Indigenous Nations in the United States. And this idea that data is a strategic resource for these communities is really interesting to me. There's a book that I found called Indigenous Data Sovereignty that was published by the Australian National University, uh, their um, Center for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research. And there's a chapter in that book about uh, Maori uh, healthcare data and how it's being collected, how it's being used uh, who has the rights to that data? What I what I realize is that what you're doing is actually part of a much larger picture and a much larger ongoing issue for indigenous people, you mm. know, all over the world in, in regards to the rights they have to the data that's collected by and about them. It's important to remember that this like this applies to everybody. 
you know, indigenous or not. I mean, I guess we're all maybe indigenous <laughs> at some point in time. But I mean, like, you know, what we're talking about in terms of data sovereignty, it's universal. What often happens is it's the minorities who who can be exploited the easiest, if if you will. But I mean, yeah. like, there's a there is a group in New Zealand. To, they're called Temana Raraunga. I think they're they're predominantly made up of academics, and they've been looking at this for much longer than than, than we have. They've developed like a two-page sort of brief on Māori um, data sovereignty, but I think it, it actually applies universally. And and there's some ideas in there that are really interesting. And so one is Fanongatanga. And the way that I see that is if you can imagine, like if you belong to a minority group, the data that you that you as an individual might have can relate very well to some of the other people in your group. And if you decide to give your data away to someone, that could affect others in your group because of the fact that you're from minority. And that's and that's sort of an ongatang is remembering that the decisions you make as an individual around your data might actually affect other people like that. Just that thinking is really important. And I think that applies universally, whether you're indigenous or not, that the decisions that we are that, that society is making as individuals in terms of the data they're giving away can affect other people in society. And I think we really need to, to like bring that to the forefront of our, of our thinking to know that, you know, like. We're not just looking after ourselves, like we're looking after others in terms of making smart decisions around what we do with our data. And and so the, the example there is is like genetic testing, right? Like because Polynesians are quite genetically similar, especially if you go down to Hawaiians and Maori, right? We're very, very genetically similar. If one of us decides, oh, yeah, I'm happy to go and get a DNA test and then um, Ancestry.com or 23andMe decide, oh, yeah, they're going to use our, our DNA to and sell it to some pharmaceutical so they can do some research and make some money off of it, well, there's other people in our group that's that's affected by that because of our genetic similarity. And so, you know, these, this thinking around like indigenous data sovereignty and, and using it as, um, what was the word you used? Um, strategic thing. I guess it's strategic in that it maybe it gives us some collateral against the colonizers. I'm, I, I don't know. Um, or, or maybe it's all that we have left and, and we should safeguard it. Or, 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 you know, like I think what we're finding with climate change, you know, a lot of indigenous ways of working with the environment were sustainable. For example, you have how we how we did fish farms in, in Hawaii allowed us to have quite a large population without a detrimental effect on the environment. And, and so it's indigenous knowledge like that that I think can help communities and economies find sustainable solutions that work for the environment and with the environment and for the people and with the people. And in that regard, perhaps that's what, you know, those publications are alluding to is that we actually do have traditional knowledge that for a while has been marginalized, right? You know, you have these sort of Western pale, stale and male scientists, um, you know, in the 1800s and, and even before coming to the indigenous communities, basically saying all of our we're just, you know, these heathenistic barbarians and um, we don't know anything. And we, we sailed to Hawaii by floating on a raft in the currents. Um, and then, of course, you know, fast forward to now, you have publications in your canonical scientific journals, you know, basically confirming what indigenous people have already known. And, and there, there, are, there are a few um, really good examples of that, which I think, again, reaffirms what maybe they're saying in these publications, that there is a lot of knowledge there that can actually not just help our own people, but actually help society. And, the, and again, that takes us back to this machine learning and revitalizing our culture at scale and that we can probably, you know, there, there's probably some, some data there amongst the indigenous people throughout the world that can be quite important um, for society as we deal with you know, these global problems around climate change and data privacy and, and all those things. Yeah, there's this idea that the knowledge that's being collected doesn't represent the needs and priorities of these communities, instead represents the needs and priorities of the, the corporations that are effectively trying to exploit that knowledge. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, especially with health, right? Um, I mean, what we're finding is that a lot of these, you know, when they when you do your um, your drug trials, your sample are predominantly uh, Western people, right? Um, you know, a lot of pharmaceuticals develop in America, so they're, they're testing their drugs on a predominantly white population or, Euro, you know, European sort of population. 
and then you take those drugs and you put them in a, a Pacific community or an African community, they don't work as well. And, and they, in fact, they might work differently because we're genetically different. I think that's one of the new things that we're finding in terms of you know health and data. And I know I know there are actually some um, there's a Maori um, a few Maori groups in this country who are looking at collecting this data on Maori so that they can develop drugs that are more effective um, for Maori and, and Pacifica. But again, like you said, I think I think often there's a um, you know there's a corporate partner who aren't held accountable by the community from which the data comes. They're held accountable by shareholders who just need to ensure a return on their investment. I feel like this is a huge problem across sort of health data drug with just making sure that corporations have some kind of incentive to actually be showing safety and efficacy across, you know, many populations. That incentive, just as you said, it's not there. I also, going back, thinking about the honey example that you used earlier, it sounds like that that is benefiting the community. But, you know, there's always this question of how do you stop someone from, like, finding a molecule that's, like, a little bit not, like, similar enough that it still works, but different enough that it can be patented, and then going off and kind of that money not flowing back into the community. Uh, with, with the honey, I think it was, I think what the patent is on is is the process. And, and yeah, like like you said, it, and um, is everyone's, even Maori, um, are benefiting from from the Monica um, economy. That that was that, that's a good example of, of it of it working well. But I mean, New Zealand, like in New Zealand, we've got the Treaty of Waitangi, which enables Maori to take a claim to the government for past injustices and contemporary injustices. And so I think that has enabled you know some of these these things to work out well. But but even even still, I mean, so right now there's the protest in Mauna Kea, and, and there's um, there's one in New, Ze- New Zealand for Ihumato who are a tribe, I think, from the Auckland region. Um, and a lot of their land, as is, for example, the Auckland airport um, sits on their land. And, and they, yeah, so they're fighting. <laughs> so there's some good things coming out of New Zealand, but, you know, we still have a, we still have a long ways to go in terms of sovereignty or, or, or um, fixing past injustices. And yet it does seem, speaking, you know, obviously as an outside observer, that New Zealand has done, you know, that that treaty was like very important and that New Zealand has done a lot better job than a lot of other countries on kind of coming to terms with its history. I don't know that I have an articulate. I'm, it's just, it's no, very I know that, that's, to me. No, that's, that is, I think that's a um, consistent outside perspective. I think, you know, one thing we have to do is we, like, we have to do, remember to do is not to, like, say, oh, you know, the Maoris have it better than the Hawaiians. That's not what it's about. But, but me, you know, coming from Hawaii into Aotearoa, you know, I'm not going to say it's better, but the treaty has enabled a lot for Maori. For example, I'm not sure we could have done, you know, this machine learning work around with speech synthesis and speech processing in Hawaii, because I don't know where the money would have come from, set, you know, short of a corporate. Whereas in New Zealand, the treaty, uh, for example, our, we got funding from the government from a claim on the 4G spectrum. So that's your, what is it, your sort of white, white frequency um, where terrestrial broadcast television used to operate on. And then they sort of took that away and, and made it go um, or or sold off that uh, spectrum real estate to telecom so they could provide 4G LTE. And so we Maori put in a claim for that. And whilst the, the, the spectrum was sold off for hundreds of millions of dollars by the government to basically two or three uh, telecom companies, uh, Maori got $30 million from that. And that $30 million was specifically set aside for ICT uh, funding. So that the idea is that um, the funding would be used to increase the capability and capacity for Māori to operate um, or exist in ICT. So whether that means uh, training for young Māori to do, uh, you know, to get a STEM degree or helping Māori businesses um, to do R&D so that they can be more um, into ICT as opposed to traditional businesses. Um, or in our case, you know, supporting uh, developing in a technology that would enable more Māori to build um, ICT-related uh, applications. So the treaty has enabled a lot of these things. Whereas in Hawaii, 
I mean, technically, by international law, what do they say? Uh, Hawaii is in America. Well, America is, is in Hawaii. The United States is still occupying the kingdom of Hawaii or, or the Hawaiian nation. Like that's that is that's the fact. That's the the, the fact as as deemed by international law and 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 even even the UN. Uh, I think the problem is no one can enforce that because America is, is the most power is still the most powerful nation in the world, though China is is quickly catching up. And so, yeah, I think Maori have they have pioneered a lot of, um, I guess, re- revitalization efforts. But all of the communities, indigenous communities throughout the world have done um, have done great things. And we've shared a lot of that um, with each other. You know, the Hawaiians started the Punana Leo through, you know, through the Kohanga Leo um, movement in Aotearoa, which I think got some ideas from um, the Gaelic uh, communities in Ireland. And so we're de- we're definitely like sharing in knowledge, and and some of us might have a easier time dealing with our governments um, than others. But it is important that we don't say, oh, oh, you know, one indigenous community has it better than the other, and and then instead we sort of think, how do we how do we support each other so we can all, you know, achieve the what what we're trying to achieve for our people. Can I ask more about the United States occupying the Kingdom of Hawaii part of that? Can you go into that more? Um, I'm, I'm very much not an expert on that. I, I can tell you a little bit of, of history on that. And so in the and and I haven't like I literally learned this in high school. <laughs> and so it's that was a while ago. What it comes down to is like Hawaii was very much a sovereign nation. It was a kingdom of Hawaii, just you know, historically, because we did have a king who sort of united all of the the main islands in Hawaii, but we quickly saw, you know, Western civilization encroaching on the Pacific. And we knew that like our chiefs at the time knew that if Hawaii wanted a future in this new world, they would need to do some things. And some of those things involved having, you know, creating this Western idea of uh, nationhood. And that meant having a palace. It meant having a flag having treaties with other countries. So we did all of that. We, you know, we, we had treaties with Japan and France and the UK. Our, our chiefs at the time or our leaders at the time did everything that they should have done to have a nation. So we very much had a vibrant, active nation. Anyone could be a Hawaiian national, a citizen of Hawaii. You didn't just have to be indigenous, an indigenous Hawaiian. Anyone could be a, a Hawaiian national. And so while we started with a kingdom, we eventually had a constitution, and I can't remember the details, but I think we had a what you would call it, I think a constitutional monarchy at one stage where, where we had a queen, but we still had elected officials and, and people would vote, et cetera. So we, we were slowly becoming more of a, of a democracy towards the late 1800s. And then in 1893, the way it goes is there, there are pretty much five, they call them the, the big five. Um, there were five business interests. These were people like um, Dole, uh, who, who are large, uh, who, are, who are the owners of plantations. What the scholars say is that their motivation was they wanted to remove tariffs between trade between Hawaii and America. And one path they saw for that um, was to make Hawaii a territory of the United States. So uh, this group of five businessmen with the illegal assistance of the United States military, um, the USS Boston was stationed in Pearl Harbor in 1893 because of the Spanish-American War. So they got the um, captain of the USS Boston to get his troops and march them to Iolani Palace, our, our palace, and hold our queen, Queen Liliuokalani, um, to gunpoint. And basically, uh, you know, had a coup and, and took our took our nation over with that. Our queen did not want any fighting or bloodshed because that's the sort of person she was. And her thinking was, you know, she's going to not have any violence and she's going to take this to the president of the United States and do the just thing to resolve the situation. At the time, Grover Cleveland was president. He got word of what had happened. He sent someone to investigate this coup in America I forget the guy's name. And and he, he basically concluded, yeah, there was an illegal overthrow of uh, our nation by with the, the assistance of the United States military. But Grover Cleveland was at that time, the election was up. And so he wasn't reelected. Instead, Roosevelt was reelected as, as the next president. He had a different way of 
of leading. And he pro- and I think he saw Hawaii as, you know, a strategic uh, military place. And so he wasn't keen on restoring the sovereignty to the people in Hawaii. And eventually, in I think it's 1897 or so, we became a territory of the United States. That's kind of the gist of it. And then, and then even later, as a slap in the face, um, in 1959, when Hawaii became, quote unquote, a state. Now, the thing with territories and statehood is what's meant to happen is, I think you're supposed to have three questions on the ballot. One is, go back to being a sovereign nation. Two is remain a territory. Or three is become a state. <clears throat> so those are the three questions you, um, you're meant to get. And only the, the um, citizens of the occupied nation are supposed to vote. Right. So only Hawaiian nationals should have been able to vote on one of those three questions. But instead, anyone residing in Hawaii at the time who were predominantly American citizens were allowed to vote on whether Hawaii should become a state. And I think that there were only two questions, and that was remain a territory or become a state. So even statehood, Hawaii becoming a state wasn't (laughs) just or, or legal in that regard. So that's, sorry, that's my like trying to remember from high school and hearing a bit about it over and over throughout the years. I'm recollection of, of the history of America's occupation in Hawaii. So technically America is still, you know, has this presence in the nation, um, which, which technically still exists. Thank you. I so appreciate this. Uh, I know you said you, you didn't remember a lot, but that seemed like a very thorough accounting. Thank you. <laughs> If I remember correctly, the U.S. made something like four treaties with Hawaii in the 19th century and then broke all of them. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, yeah, you're, I think that's right. Because, I mean, surely with tariffs, there's treaties, right? And then I know we had some trade tariffs with um, America at the time for the with sugar plantations and that. I'm really interested in this license and how you sort oh, of right. – How you <laughs> – create a license to protect uh, data sovereignty yeah like what it does that's different from other licenses right uh, okay so we're trying to work on this thing called the kaitiaki tanga license so uh, kaitiaki is guardian protector i don't totally understand maori linguistics but the tanga um maybe it personifies it or something or makes it a noun or something so kaitiaki tanga license but putting that aside, like how we operate as an organization is we is um, and because of my partner, who's a general manager, like he very much knows the customs of his people and he brings that into how he how he runs our organization. So every like so our actions are guided by uh, tikanga, which is which is the Maori word for custom. So we do things the Maori way. And so. Just by nature of how we operate on a day-to-day basis, we sort of brought that into, you know, what we do with with data. And, and that is apply tikanga, apply our cultural customs uh, to the process in which we deal with data. And so what that means is it means, for example, uh, we like to have a face-to-face conversation with people, you know, before we give them access to things. And yeah, okay, that might not scale um, in the digital realm, but that's how we operate. And so that's one thing that that is important for us in terms of this license is that if if somebody wants access to this data or this IP, we need to have some sort of a relationship building uh, thing at first, whether that is a face to face conversation like in person or or via video. And that's just for us to get a feel of of the other people and, you know, see if their intentions are genuine and that they, you know, they want to do the right thing with this data. So the other part of it is ensuring that the data or the IP is used for the benefit of X, right? And, and, and you can define what X is. And, and in this case, with what we're doing, that is for the benefit of Māori. It is for the revitalization and the promotion and the preservation of te reo Māori and te ao Māori, or, you know, every, of everything Māori. And that's what we want to see. We also want to see a commitment to create jobs for Māori in the tech sector, so we actually have high value jobs so we can help to move our people out of poverty. So those are some of the sort of the values and vision of the license. Um, we're not sure how do we like how we can use this in a um, like in a legal in a legal sense. It's more of a way of, of doing business, if you will. But but we think we could uh, turn it into a legal thing. And because we have the treaty, you know, we might have um, some precedents um, for claims over some of these things. 
if it's hard to understand, I like my equivalent is affirmative action. And so with with our Kaitiaki Tunga license, so we've we've got we've got these APIs for Maori speech recognition and speech synthesis. We want Maori to be the first uh, to use these APIs to have the opportunity to create chatbots or whatever you want with this technology. And then if after a certain amount of time, you know, they don't want to, then we will open it up to non-Maori. Now, that was this was our thinking, you know, two years ago. Fast forward to now, we are being contacted by a number of non-Maori organizations asking us for access to our APIs and in some cases quite blatantly asking us for data, which we should have expected because there aren't very many Maori in STEM. So there aren't very many Maori leading or running tech companies or, or startups, predominantly non-Maori in, in New Zealand, you know, who are building, you know, sort of speech chat interfaces for government uh, or for businesses. And they all want to be able to support Te Reo Maori because they are realizing that there is a Maori economy popping up in this country. More people are speaking Maori. Businesses want to be able to support Today, Omari. So we're so we're again we're in this this sticky situation where we've developed these tools for Maori, um, but there aren't very many Maori out there who want to use them. But there are a lot of non-Maori out there who want to use them. So now we need to rethink, you know, what do we do about this? And like I said earlier, like if there are Maori in that organization, or it's co-led by an organization, or that non-Maori organization can show a commitment to support Maori, whether it's by, via jobs. Um, or whether it's, you know, supporting, um, you know, some of our missions in terms of language revitalization, then we're definitely happy to work um, with those organizations to provide the sort of speech tools that they might want to use. So you're you're in a in a position where you're a sort of a steward, or I guess you said a, a guardian for, for this data, and also sort of a, a broker or a partner with sharing that data responsibly with other parties. That seems like a position with a lot of responsibility for you in terms of you know, extending that that trust that yeah. you've built with these communities and you know adding to like there's a chain of trust from the people you might work with back, all the way back to the communities. Yeah, that that's that's exactly it. And I, I, remember now, I'm Hawaiian. I'm not Maori, right? I don't make these decisions. Maori are, Maori are the ones who make these decisions. Like and that's why my partner is so important, and our organization, and the fact that our organization is the um, our trustees. You know, there are elders as well. We have elders on our on our board, and so there. You know, there's this this whole group of people who are part of us and help guide us in terms of making these decisions. We don't know what the right decision is. All we all we know is we just have to move forward, and so. Even 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 now, like we're asking other Maori leaders who have been in this industry and, and who are sort of thinking the same thing, like, what do we do? And we're not sure. And so I think we're trying to convene a meeting or a hui or wananga on, on this very this very issue of the fact that we have this tech and we have this data and, and there are people who want access to it. And we're going to have to make sure we like it, like people are going to have to have access to it, but we need to make sure we we do it in the right way. And like you said, yeah, extending that trust. And that's why that face-to-face stuff, you know, it's like it's like when you're hiring people, right? There's all this stuff on paper. You really need to get get to know the person. You know, for us, we're a small organization. There's like, there's about 10 of us. Our tech team is like two. <laughs> I mean, we bring in contractors now and then to help with writing code and whatever, but it's it's pretty much me. And, and we, we've hired a, um, a junior who, who I've been mentoring um, over the last six months. Um, and so if we make the wrong decision in hiring someone, it does a toll on our organization, like significantly because of how small we are. And I think and I think that's the same idea when you look at, you know, Maori indigenous data is that if you make the wrong decision there, it can have significant impacts, you know, on, on the entire community. It is a big responsibility. And, you know, another interesting thing is I was um, asked, first I was asked by a Hawaiian, he asked me, what do I identify as? And I was, I was like, what? Um, at first I thought he was talking about my sexuality. Um, but he said, no, like, are you a Hawaiian or are you a Maori? Because when I go and I speak about the project and the work that we do, I use things like we and our, which are inclusive 
words, right? That that suggests that, like, I mean, you thought I was Maori, for example, and me using those words makes people think that that I'm Maori. But like, I'm not. I'm, I'm genetically, I'm not Maori, but my whanau, my family are Maori. My partner is a Maori. You know, I am like another son to his mother and his father. And so I'm very much a part of the family and a part of the community. And the elders in that community have given me the permission to speak on behalf of our organization. And that is why I go up and I speak with we in our. I am a Hawaiian and I have a kuleana. I have a responsibility to Hawaii. And likewise, the same question was asked in New Zealand. Like, what do I feel being a non-Maori and speaking on, you know, Maori data and, and technology and all these things? Unfortunately, the our, you know, half of our organization was was there to support me. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm very much aware of, of my role and what I, you know, what I can and can't do. And I'm very much aware that I do not make any decisions on behalf of Maori. I can make decisions on behalf of our whanau and on behalf of our organization. But I am in a very difficult situation where uh, like, I need to ensure I don't do the wrong thing because, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I'm the one who's got all the AWS credentials, right, to our data and our APIs and all those things. So, yeah, it's, it's a big responsibility. Like the fact that I feel that it's an important responsibility, I think is important. And perhaps that's one thing that we need in tech, like people to realize that in their positions and in their roles, you know, they might have a lot more responsibility than they think to do because they're often just stuck in the code. But if they think about the greater ramifications of the things they're building or the data that they have, they really need to be aware of, of how their little decisions can affect a lot of people. And Because and, if not, then you get what you get with, with Facebook, right? Cambridge Analytica, et cetera. I feel like there was so much juicy stuff in all of what you just said. I don't even know where to start. I'm like the nature of responsibility and how, you know, what you just said about all of us in tech really having a responsibility, even if you're a junior individual contributor, what we do has impact on other people and on the world what you said about sort of person to person being important for developing trust and, you know, the responsibility that that sort of person to person trust entails and hiring decisions, for example, which I hire a lot. So I think about this a lot (laughs) because you're right, you know, particularly, you know, even in a larger organization, a hire that someone who breaches trust can have such a, a, a huge negative impacts on the, the people around them. I think the thing that's the most striking for me is how this all relates back, it seems, to a sense of community. That's something that I don't have as much of. Uh, you know, I have neighbors that I don't really talk to. I have friends that I see occasionally, but I don't feel the same sense of connection to a, you know, a community. I don't have any elders to be on, on my board. Um, and I wonder how that sense of community plays into this and how it maybe helps you be more conscious and, and empathetic towards, you know, the needs of the, of the people around you. I don't know yeah. how to build a sense of community in places where it hasn't sort of arose through culture and, and family. Mm. That's a good point. It's what's the sort of, what's the, is there like some shared cause or shared vision or, I mean, like, you know, protests, for example, or, you know, protectors, right? If you want a good sense of community, Go to Mauna Kea. Like, if you can afford the trip, whether you're Hawaiian or not, I give you permission. Go to Mauna Kea and just see what community can be, what society can be. Like, in 10 days, they've created this community. It is just full of love. Like, you don't, there's nothing negative about it. It is just so supportive and full of love. There's free medical. If you're sick or unwell, you can get access to free medical. You can even get a massage. We call it lomi lomi, which is a traditional Hawaiian form of of massage. Um, I think I saw four lomi lomi uh, or massage tables there. There's free food. There's always food. And you can always have food if you're hungry. And there's a university. And it doesn't cost any money. And it is just people... It's sort of like an unconference, right? We just go and, uh, you know, you sort of all come together and decide what the schedule is going to be, et cetera. And so it's this big sort of unconference that's running every day. There's four tranches with 
five sessions in each one. And they are thing they're you know they're doing things like Hawaiian language, uh, learn Hawaiian chants, learn about the multitude of varieties of kalo or taro or that gooey purpley stuff you might have seen when you visited Hawaii. I ran a course on on uh, data sovereignty. Uh, my partner ran a course on indigenous media. Uh, there are courses on Hawaiian governance, on you know what we talked about in terms of um, Hawaiian kingdom and and the overthrow. This is all just sort of. It's just sort of happened. It's like this community just sort of just created itself and naturally grew and organized over time. And that is a great example because of, of community because at the end of the day, they are, they are fighting for the same cause. And it's not an anti-science cause. It's more about the sovereignty of our people and the protection of our people and the place that we live in. It's about the protection of of the mountain, the protection of the environment, because we've seen so much happen to Hawaii, um, you know, since the overthrow. I mean, everything from the introduction of multitude of invasive species, you know, to corporations like Monsanto and Syngenta, uh, trialing experimental herbicides and pesticides near our schools, near our communities, which are predominantly native Hawaiian. My cousin, she was a triathlete and she was running through the fields one day and then just got sick, got some weird uh, neurological um, illness and is now permanently, permanently damaged from that. Be- and this is and this is because of, of the, the herbicides and pesticides being sprayed. There's no there's no they have no accountability to these communities, these corporates. Their only accountability is back to their shareholders. Right. And the state allows them to just come in and do whatever they want because they've ticked the legal boxes and, and perhaps they've paid paid some amount of money for something uh, for our organization in terms of, you know, grounding us back to our community. Uh, we're a. Take your media. Um, we're, we're a media organization. We started in radio, and and you know back in the golden days of radio, like outdoor broadcasts were this thing. Uh, the equivalent of an outdoor broadcast today is live streaming. So it was very common for radio to go out into the community and have a broadcast, like at the opening of a new building or store, right? Because the stores, you know, it's sort of like commercial um, advertising opportunity. So what we do a lot is we go into the community and we live stream. Uh, events that are important for our people. And for us, that's uh, kapahaka, which is uh, like a traditional Maori dance. So we have kapahaka competitions where you have groups from different schools perform a, a haka and, and compete against each other. So we live stream those, um, which means we film it, uh, we cut the performances up, and we make them available on demand um, for the community to watch. We also uh, broadcast uh, speech competitions, Te Reo Māori speech competitions, and other and any other event that that our community asks. Us. So the community come to us and say, "Hey, we're doing this thing. Can you live stream it?" And we're in this position again where we have to say either yes or no, and no because we don't we don't have the resources to live stream everything. Um, we can only do so much, and we have to balance that based on you know what we think is um, the community want, also like what will what will have more views because. Some of our funding is based on those metrics of viewership as opposed to, um, you know, value to the community. But we're actually, because of our work, we're helping to shape, you know, how um, some of these government departments see the work that we do. We're helping them to realize that um, it isn't just about large numbers. It's about sort of the engagement and adding value to the community. So how we how we sort of reconnect with the community is that we're always out there in the community doing our work. And that just reminds like the staff of their job. Like I get teary eyed sometimes, you know, when I see when I see our whole crew doing a great job and you and you see, you know, a, a young high school student on the stage talking about suicide or something like talking about things that are so important, not just to us, but like, you know, to society and giving them a platform to voice that to their community and also to the rest of the country. Like that reminds us of our job and of our duty and why why we enjoy doing what what we do, and all of our staff see it. And I think, you know, it it, it brings that human aspect back into the work. We're not just stuck in our offices. Oftentimes, we are just stuck in our offices doing work. But you know, every you know every other month or at least four times a year, we have to go out into the community and do a live stream, which helps 
them remember who we are and us remember who they are and know their faces and know that, um, yeah, that we have a responsibility to provide for them. When I was looking into these protests at Mauna Kea, uh, one thing that I learned that, that really struck with me, and it's the way that these protests are integrated into the cultural traditions that already existed. So, for example, I learned that when the protesters went to the the access road at the base of Mauna Kea, they to organize, they they formed a refuge. Uh, I think it's called a Pu'unohua or something yeah. like that. Pu'uhonua. Yeah, Pu'uhonua. and it's there's a rich cultural tradition around around this. This isn't this is. You know, the people there knew what this meant and knew how to organize in this way and were able to to take advantage of, of their shared understanding in a way that I thought was really powerful. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, I mean, because I like I don't like I, I grew up Hawaiian like in every way, but I'm not fluent in Hawaii. I don't do the hula. I don't know very many chants. And I don't know much about Hawaiian protocol because I mean, because of colonization, so much has been erased, um, you know, from our culture. And, and there are there are there are families who have maintained some of that. So for me, going on the Mauna, I was relearning Hawaiian protocol that that I had never seen before because I had never had the opportunity to see it because I was too busy going to school and getting a Western education. But yeah, it is very well organized and, and pro- protocol is really important. So three times a day they have protocol which is, you know, they, they have some chants. And then if there are any special guests, so that, you know, these are people of, of importance, whether it's the mayor or, or an, a, a chief from, you know, say from Tonga, we, we have a protocol where we welcome them into our place with the chant and they respond with the chant. And then they go up and they meet, you know, the leaders and they are applying that, you know, to their protection, right? Because we're using, we're using the word protection, not protest. You know, I think that's important. I mean, even when we talk about kaitiakitanga, what is the protocol around dealing with certain types of data? For example, sometimes we live stream funerals, which we call tangi. So they're not exactly a funeral, but the equivalent is a funeral. And so for us, like it allows family who are not able to travel to these places to pay respects to the person who has passed away to still be a part of that because the tangi is a lot of protocol in Tangi, and it varies based on the, the tribe in, in the country. The Tangi are, are held on the Marae, which is like a gathering place for Māori. You have to be welcomed onto the Marae via a karanga, and you have, which is a, um, like, a, like a call, and then you have to respond. And then there are speeches. And in terms of our job as a broadcaster, like we need to respect the protocols around that. We don't ever film the tupapa, which is the body. We don't ever put the casket in the camera. We, you're not allowed to broadcast that. And then once the tangi is done, it's done, it's closed. So we don't make that available on demand um, for people to watch, you know, after, after the, you know, the person's been buried. Um, but we do ha- we still hold on to that data and, you know, the whanau might um, want it. But yeah, so now, you know, we're entering into new, new realms, right? We're, we're bringing our protocol with us and we're saying, how do we apply to our protocol to this you know, particular thing. And I think the Hawaiians there would be like, okay, well, how do we apply our protocol to, we've had protocol for protecting, but how do we pl- apply our protocol to protecting the Mauna in this particular instance where we have bulldozers that want to go up there and, you know, there's laws because it's on state land. So we're not allowed to sell merchandise. We're not allowed to smoke or drink. So these protocols that we have three times a day at the end of the protocol, the official Hawaiian stuff you know, the leaders like Pua Case goes up and, and reminds everyone of our seven rules. And at the end of the day, it's be pono, be good, do the right thing and make sure you don't smoke or have weapons or do drugs or sell anything because the state will use any opportunity they can to evict all of these peaceful protesters. And so having that protocol is so important. And I think you, you can see it in, you know, in, in like in organizations or corporations who have a, a culture or whatever, like, I think protocol can help an organization maybe to be more efficient or to ensure, you know, to ensure you're, you're doing the right thing or to ensure that, you you know, you have uh, uh, that your staff are happy or whatever. And, you know, whether it's a stand up meeting every morning or, you know, going on a, a company retreat twice a year. I mean, I mean, you can you can sort of say those are our protocol, but I guess our protocols have been developed over like, you know, hundreds of years 
and we're sort of bringing it into these new realms. Yeah, this this really puts the lie to what startups in Silicon Valley call cultural fit. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you want to know what culture is, it's this sort of thing. It's shared right. values and beliefs and understandings and ideas and traditions that let you organize and, and show solidarity for each other. And it's not, you know, do we have catered lunches? <laughs> Yes. Uh, How many different kinds of cold brew do we have? (laughs) I'm so fascinated by this community that's growing up around the protection, not the protests. I do think it is possible to have a shared culture that isn't necessarily as you know, goes back hundreds of years. I think there are other kinds of communities that have developed around protests in the past that certainly have come up very quickly with sort of those shared norms. And that maybe that's something I was thinking also about what you said about elders and, oh, well, well, we don't have elders. I'm thinking about kind of the ageism that exists in tech almost. It's like tech needs to sort of find more elders to listen mm. to. But if they could not just be all of the old white guys, that would yeah. be super helpful. <laughs> yeah. Let's move to reflections then, if that's okay with everyone. So this is generally just an opportunity for us to share anything that was really meaningful or significant or that we learned that we want to reflect on. My reflection builds on what what Amy just said, and it's that if we want to organize successfully in our communities, you know, I look at the organization that's happening right now at at Google and Amazon and, and various places in the tech industry, that this sort of shared culture, this really deep connection between people, it enables a level of solidarity that I think we really need to be able to find to build, you know, and organize uh, these communities successfully. Here in Portland, actually, um, a few blocks from where I live, there's an ice facility and there have been various, you know, sit-ins and tent communities that have been broken up by the police and i think about how important it is for those people the, the people that are engaging in those protests in their organizing to have a shared sense of of community and and an understanding of what it is that they're trying to do together uh, mm-hmm. and how important that is for for their sol- solidarity and for for their ability to to be effective this is actually reminded me of a topic that I I wrote my senior thesis on a long time ago now, um, which was about um, feminist anti-nuclear activism in the early 80s, where they they did a similar thing. They actually were like, they built these women's camps around, you know, places that were housing nuclear missiles and things. And so sort of reminding me to look back through our history for, you know, different examples for how groups of people in the tech example. So we share, you know, skills or, you know, industry knowledge, but where, how do we find a way to come together? Let's look at how, you know, people have historically done that and how successful, you know, successful groups are doing that right now and not, you know, do that not invented here thing where we have to, you know, invent it all ourselves. Yeah, I, the, what you what you just said there around yeah, the, not reinventing it. I because yeah, I had I had never really been to a protest. I mean, I've been to a march before, Hawaiian march, but I haven't I haven't been to you know I, I wasn't at Standing Rock or a lot of these other indigenous protests or or the one in um the Wall Street one. I was amazed. Like I, when I went there, I wanted to know like who who's running the show, like who's leading this. I mean, yeah, there were a few sort of leaders that stood out, but you couldn't really point and say exactly like how this is being run. It it just sort of, it was like a a big network that was just operating um, efficiently. Yeah. It was just, it was so interesting just, just to, just to see that, you know, from the, what a technical um, side of it and management side of it, like, like how it's all happening. Like that was so, that was so interesting. And yeah. And I was thinking, yeah, it would be great if, you know, that, that could be not captured, but you know, that other groups, can learn from that, um, you know, if they have to um, protest or stand up for their rights for something. And this is why I'm saying everyone should just go to Mauna Kea because you'll learn so much there. And it, and it is such an, such an amazing thing just to feel the mana there and, and be a part of that and understand why it is that we're there. 
and TMT might just be the catalyst. You know, it, it might just be the catalyst that some people some people are calling it as today's Ko'olawe, where the where the government was just bombing the crap out of this little island doing their ammunition testing. Like maybe this is the present day Ko'olawe, or maybe this is finally that that catalyst that gets us on our path um, to complete sovereignty. One thing I did want to reflect on, uh, Rain, which you mentioned was how do we, you know, how do we connect to our community? And and I know like our organization does that, but I thought that was a, a really interesting thing to think about, you know, on a larger scale or or for all sorts of communities or, or, or minorities or organizations. Like what enables us to do the right thing and and what is the right thing? Those are really, I think, what it all boils down to. And so much could be resolved if we did the right thing. But what enables humans, individuals, or groups of people to do the right thing? I think that community connection, that connection back to a people or a society or a place or an environment, connection to something is what, I mean, I, I personally feel helps that. But I think, I think society could, could do more thinking on that issue or on that thing is what what connects us to something to enable us to do the right thing because there are a lot of people out there trying to do the right thing but I think for the most part it might just be a few individuals who hold a lot of power who are doing the wrong thing and and where where in their life did they miss the boat and decided that it's all about them and not about anybody else and I think you know even in tech I mean you might be in a place of privilege if, if you can say, I'm not going to work at this organization because they don't do the right thing. And it sucks that that a lot of us aren't in a position to just say, yeah, I can quit my job and go work somewhere else um, because I don't because my company are, are, are terrible. I wish more corporates and governments could do the right thing, whatever the right thing might be. And, and that evolves over time, I think. But I think there is a collective universal right thing at any point in time that most most of us can agree on well that that could be a whole other episode i think (laughs) 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 okay Uh, this this has been really great and i'm I'm really glad you came on the podcast and amy uh, thank you for for joining thank you um yes this has been awesome and um also slightly terrifying so um (laughs) but you did it (laughs) but yeah i i really appreciated hearing about all of this stuff that i honestly didn't know that there was a protest going on right now so now i have lots of reading to do (laughs) so um thank you so much this has been very interesting. 